0: Good morning, CBC. My name is Will Cody, and I am the campus minister at Austin P. for our denomination. And I am excited to be the once a month special guest preacher here this morning. Our text today is Judges chapters 14 and 15. I think they're on page 214 of the Pew Bible, if you have that. Last week we heard the introduction of our last judge in this book of Judges. The last judge here mentioned in this book is Samson. And as we've been reading through the book of Judges the past few months, we've seen God's people, we've seen them repeatedly over and over again, rejecting the Lord, not trusting in Him. But when they get into trouble and they cry out to God, he sends them a warrior judge to save them from their enemies. We've seen this cycle over and over and over again. Last week we heard from the angel of the Lord who came to this childless couple and he told them about this miraculous baby that they would bear. And this baby was going to grow up and begin to save Israel from their latest and greatest enemies, the Philistines. So the writer has set us up in this chapter to have some really high hopes for this last judge and this miracle baby, Samson, who's all grown up now in our text. So let's turn to Judges chapter 14. And we'll read chapter 14. We'll stop for a little while, and then will talk about some stuff, and then we'll read most of 15 after that in a few minutes. Hear God's word to you, his people. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking, the Lord seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her. And he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave them some of the honey and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped it from the carcass of the lion." His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father or my mother. Shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, Samson, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, that's a Philistine city, and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those he had told the riddle to. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Let's ask God to help us. Father, every week we come to you, we read your word, we hear it, and we need you to bring it down into our hearts. Help us to understand it in our minds. Most of all, help us through that to understand you and to trust you with our hearts. And we pray you use this, Weird, crazy story of Samson to do just that. Send us out, trusting you this Lord's day. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So you may not be aware, but this is the 40th anniversary of something that's pretty interesting. 40 years ago, on on August 23rd, um, 1973, a man named John Eric Olson, he put on a mask, he walked into a bank, and he fired the gun into the ceiling, shouting to everybody, Let's get this party started. (laughs) (laughs) Olsen apparently was as bad at getting parties started as he was at bank robberies because only a few minutes later, way earlier than he had anticipated or planned, the cops show up, foiling his robbery, foiling his getaway. And after the initial chaos and confusion subsides, he ends up at at the end of this, holed up with four hostages inside the bank. And the standoff between Olson and his four hostages and the police lasted six whole days. They were in the bank. And during this time, he demanded his best friend be broken out of jail and brought to this really bad, bad dude, uh, be broken out of jail, brought to the bank to be with him and help him uh, in this bank hostage situation, which the police obliged. They, he also demanded $700,000, uh, guns, a bulletproof vests, and a Ford Mustang. And if he didn't get any of this stuff, he said he was gonna kill the hostages. But a strange thing started to happen inside of the bank. Olson told the prisoners that he was going to shoot them. <laughs> he threatened them a lot. He pointed his gun toward them, fired his gun toward them. He threatened to blow them up with dynamite. And That's not the weird part, because that's what you would do if you were um, holding hostage. You gotta show them who's boss, right? The weird part though, was their response. Because rather than being angry at this Olson guy, I would be at least a little resentful. This guy's ruining my whole week by this hostage-taking thing. Um, instead, they started taking his side, and they started turning. Ag- in, they started like being against the police and for Olson. For example, at one point, Olson threatened one of the hostages that he was going to shoot the, the hostage in the leg because he wanted to show the police that he meant business. He was threatening to shoot this guy in the leg, and here's what the guy said later. He said that, this is how he felt at the time. He said, how kind I thought he was for saying it was just my leg. He was shoot. <laughs> well, the four hostages were finally rescued. The police like uh, pumped tear gas into the into the bank, and they were, they were able to arrest Olson. And the people were unenthusiastically rescued, <laughs> the hostages. But get this: so afterwards, the hostages refused to testify against Olson in court, and they they actually ended up testifying in his defense. And some of them even helped pay for his legal defenses. They um, and then after he went to jail, they went to visit him in jail to keep up the relationship that, that started that one day in <laughs> August. It's a crazy story. I'm, I wonder, can anybody guess what famous city this happened in? Stockholm. Stockholm. Yes, that's right. This happened in Stockholm, Sweden. This is where we get the term Stockholm Syndrome from. Is from this event. Stockholm Syndrome. If you never heard of it, it's this phenomenon where captives or hostages turn against those that are trying to rescue them and actually turn and even join up with those who are holding them hostage, they're kidnappers. Um, There's a lot of controversy about whether this is a real phenomenon or not. But what is real is that this is absolutely what's happening in our text today in Judges 14 and 15. This is what happens to the people of Israel. By the end of this text today, they they turn against God who has come to rescue them. And they're joining up with the Philistines, with their enemies who are subjugating them. And this is a new low for the nation of Israel. What is God going to do? How is he going to respond to a people like this? I usually have like a big idea that kind of forms what we're gonna talk, what the text is about. But today I have a big question instead. And the big question is, how does God respond when his people turn away from him? How does God respond when his people turn away from him? We have a great example of this in our text today. How do we see him respond to Israel? And how does he respond to us today when we, his people, turn away from him? And usually this is where I have a verse or two that we get into the text and start to figure out what's going on. But let's start this sermon, let's look at a verse that's not there. Let's do that instead. Uh, there's a verse that's not here that we really need to really pay attention to. I mentioned in the intro that it's like this domino effect in the book of Judges. Um, first, what happens is the people turn away from God. happens over and over again. People turn away from God. Then they get taken over by their enemies. And then the next thing that happens is they cry out to God. And then finally, the Lord is over, overwhelmed with compassion for this people, and he can't help himself. He sends a savior, he sends a judge to save them. This is the cycle, repeated cycle in Judges. But in this latest cycle with these Philistines, one crucial domino is missing. And as you know, if you've ever done dominoes before, if you miss one domino, the rest of the thing doesn't happen. It's conspicuously missing from this story. And here's what it is, they've stopped asking for help. They've stopped crying for help against their enemies. Every time they've cried out in the past, God has responded. Even when God's like, I know you're all going to turn from me again. I'm not sending a savior this time. Even then, he still sends a savior. He can't help it. But it's gotten to the point that they don't even ask for help anymore. So what's going to happen next? And not only are they not asking for help, but their judge, their savior that's supposed to come and save them, he doesn't seem to care either. The story of Samson here opens up with him not only just being friendly with the Philistines, their enemies, he actually wants to marry one of them. He wants to weld himself into the Philistine, uh, the Philistine family, the Philistine nation. So for a moment, I just want, like, why is this so bad what's happening? Why is it so bad what people of Israel do, are doing and what Samson is doing? The obvious answer is that they're going to be, they're going to be stuck in their slavery and their bondage, but there's a bigger picture of why this is so bad. Throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament, there's this thread that weaves the whole Bible together, especially the Old Testament, the New Testament too. And the thread is that God has chosen a people for himself. And through this people, through Israel, God is going to bless this cursed world. He's going to redeem this rebellious, guilty place. And he's gonna save it through this people somehow. They are, the, they are the conduit of blessing to this world, is the people of Israel. And we see this thread um, threatened to be cut several times. One of the dramatic things as you read through the Old Testament. For example, when Abraham seeks to have a child with, without his wife, Sarah, if, if he were to, if he were to um, get his way, Isaac would have never been born. And there would have been no Israel when the people are in Egypt, they're threatened to be snuffed out by, the, by Pharaoh in Egypt when they're in bondage. When Babylon exiles the nation of Judah and it almost seems like the, the, the monarchy is destroyed and the people are mixed in the nations and it seems like this, this is the end of Israel. This is it, if it feels like for a moment. Israel has these dramatic moments where they're almost wiped out as a nation in all these various ways. But here, Israel is being threatened with extinction as well. But it's not this big dramatic event. It's more like it's more like radon gas. You know, radon gas, it's the threat, it's a silent but deadly gas, right? The threat, it's more like radon gas. It's silent, it's odorless, it slowly leaks into your home and it kills you. Because if they continue to be unfaithful to the Lord, to never even cry for him to help, their fate is to be mixed up and assimilated into the Philistines, and there's no more blessing for the world. God's promises are, are null and void. And in only a couple of generations, and the fastest way to do this is probably through marriage and having children with the Philistines. It's probably the fastest way to make this happen. In a few generations, there will be no people, there will be no entity, there will be no ch- chosen people left with which God can bless the world. And they aren't, they don't care. They aren't gonna fight for themselves. They're not even going to ask for help. And they need somebody to come and fight for them. My wife and I read this book this summer together. It's an interesting book to read together. It's called How to Stay Married. Uh, Weston Duke mentioned this book a few weeks ago. This is a, it's a like, humorous autobiographical memoir kind of book. And so the book opens with uh, the author. His, name's, his name is Harrison Scott Key. So the, author, the book opens with the author Key telling the story, at the very beginning of the book, of how his wife of three children came to him one day and told him, that she was having an affair with a neighbor and she wants a divorce so she can live with this neighbor. So over the next few days, they're living in this, him and his wife, they're living in this kind of in-between marriage and divorce purgatory kind of state. And he's trying to figure out, what am I gonna do? So he goes to the pastor of the church that he's at at the time and he tells him the whole story. And the pastor prays for him. And then he says that, he asks the pastor for advice. And the, the pastor says, well, we could discipline her. And Key's like, I don't think that's gonna help my marriage. <laughs> what if she doesn't stop the affair? And the pastor answers, well, excommunication. So Key leaves the guy's office. He's sitting with this information. And he's wondering, what should I do? Should I give up on her? Should I give up on our marriage? And he has another conversation with a family friend named Angie. And he's talking about everything that's happening. And she says something shocking. For some reason, it was shocking to me, even as I was reading the book. But this is, I'm gonna semi quote what she says in this book. Angie says, to, um, Angie says to him, you're gonna fight for her, aren't you? And he says, I love her, but I also hate her. And Angie responds, fight for her. He's wife was unfaithful and turning away from him, turning away from their marriage, turning away from their family, toward this miserable, destructive, stupid life that she was choosing. And she had no one in her corner, not even herself. She needed someone to fight for her. And her husband responds by picking up that fight. He chose to fight for his wife. Israel's God, who so often calls Israel his wife, and that he is her husband, responds to their turning away this way as well. He chooses to fight for his bride, to fight for his people. Enter Samson, the big fighter. We read in verse four that while Samson is seeking this wife, this whole ordeal with his wife is just the lighting of a fuse to a huge powder keg we'll get to in, verse, in chapter 15, where God is going to save them from themselves. We read in verse four that this whole ordeal was from the Lord for the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God is going to use this all to save them, to fight for them. Our big question, what happens when God's people turn away from him? Answer, he never gives up on them. He fights for them. We will see, as we go through this, we are gonna see God fighting for his people through this guy, Samson, who doesn't, doesn't seem like he even knows what he's doing, Good God is fighting for him. Do you have a God who fights for you? Do you have a God who, when you turn away, when you disobey, when you fail, that this God fights for you? When you fail the God of success or you fail the God of grades or maybe you failed the, t- the test, you failed the, the God of um, having the perfect family. Maybe you've, uh, what about the God of romantic relationships or the God of wealth or the God of having a good image online or in person. Do those gods fight for you? What happens when you fail those gods? They grind you and spit you out. They condemn you. They kill you. That's what happens when you fail all those gods. What happens when you fail the God of judges? He fights for you. He fights for his adulterous people. (laughs) And the rest of this text is going to be raising another question as God fights for his people. The the next question as we start to get to the end of this next section is, how does the Lord respond? Yeah, he fights for you, but what if his people don't wanna be saved? What if his people don't wanna be saved? Let's see what the text says to this question. Let's get into this story that I've read. Let's walk through this story, and let's see God fight to save them and how they respond. So here's the story. Samson wants to marry this Philistine woman. But when he's on his way to go visit her, suddenly a lion attacks him. It comes, comes out of nowhere in the story. This lion comes out and attacks him. But the Spirit of God, and we get the first hints of Samson's crazy strength here, the Spirit of God um, helps Samson, and he rips the lion in half like you would rip a Sam's rotisserie chicken in half. Just, just rips it in half. So when, the, when, the, when he comes back that way later toward his wedding feast, he goes to check out. I wonder what happened to that lion I ripped in half. <laughs> he goes and checks it out. And in the, this desert environment, the, the carcass is dr- completely dried out and a nest of bees has um, formed inside. And there's honey and he scrapes it out with his hand and he's walking. I don't know how this works, I, honestly. I, I don't know how he was walking with his hand, but maybe he's just licking his hand, <laughs> I guess. Uh, somehow he takes some of the honey, he's walking, he gives it to his parents somehow. I don't know how this works. Uh, but when he gets to the wedding feast, finally it's, he's got this seven day wedding feast. And they notice that the people at the wedding feast, all the Philistines, they notice that Samson didn't bring any friends. Apparently Samson has no friends. So they kind of coax 30 guys into coming and being his friend. They're not quite friends. That's why it's, it's called companions here over and over again in this text. Because this is supposed to be a party and we need lots of people and Samson's got no people. And during this week, Samson's working the grill for this feast. It says that he's preparing the feast and making some goat burgers maybe. And maybe there was a lull in the conversation, but Samson wants to make things a little fun. And he also wants to make it interesting. So he asked the 30 companions, would y'all like to hear a riddle? And let's make it interesting. Let's say, if y'all get the riddle, then I'll give you 30 pairs of clothes. And if, I, if you don't get the riddle, you gotta give me 30 pairs of clothes. And apparently these are pretty fancy clothes. They talk about being impoverished here. So these are probably a, a big source of their wealth was in these clothes. So he tells them this weird riddle. (laughs) He says, in verse 16, it says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And I love that this happens to rhyme in English. They made it rhyme in English. Now, this riddle is hilarious because it's both impossible and it's also kind of an easy riddle, okay? It's impossible because it's about this thing that happened to Samson that nobody knows about. It's a secret, you know, experience that he had um, when he found the honey and the lion. It's a ridiculous riddle. It's like asking, uh, it's like, hey, let me tell you a riddle. What's in my pocket? That's a terrible riddle, right? That's not how riddles work. (laughs) But it's also like, they could have figured this out. Like given enough days, these guys could have figured this out. What's the strongest thing in that area at the time? I mean, lion's probably somewhere at the top of that list. What's the sweetest thing in, in the land? Honey's probably the first, if not second or third. They could have figured this out. So it's impossible, but also really easy at the same time, this riddle. Nevertheless, they can't figure out this riddle, and they threaten his wife to get the answer. They're going to burn her and her dad and their house all together. So the wife, understandably, she, I mean, she turns to Samson, and she turns on the waterworks. She tortures him with her tears. And finally, he can't take it anymore. On the last day, he tells her the answer to the riddle, tells her about the lion, tells her about the honey. And then, of course, they come to him, and they're... They, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Ha, ha, ha. He gets really, and now, Samson gets really angry because he gets betrayed by his wife. He loses this, this, uh, this bet that he had. And he replies, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So he knows how she got the answer. His heifer, his cow, he calls her here, which probably hurt his wife's feelings, calling her a cow. So then he runs off to this other Philistine town, Ashkelon, He finds 30 random dudes that I guess are about the same size as his other 30 companions. He finds 30 guys, kills them, takes their clothes, and brings it back and gives it, throws it in their faces, these 30 changes of clothes. Then it all ends with Samson running home to his mom and dad's house in hot anger while his wife is married off to another guy. Best wedding ever. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then it gets worse. All right, it only gets worse as we get into chapter 15. Or maybe it gets better, depending on your point of view. Our story escalates in chapter 15, and it's only gonna escalate from here. It's like, you bring a knife to the fight, he's gonna bring a bazooka. Sam's gonna bring a bazooka. It just gets crazier and crazier. So verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse one, if you have it, we'll have it on the screen, if you have it in your, Bible, your Bibles. See if you don't start to feel a little bit of sympathy for the <laughs> Philistines here as well. A little Stockholm syndrome for the Philistines. So chapter 15, verse one. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not let him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regards to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson comes back to his wife and who knows how many months later this is. This is a long time, it sounds like. And it seems like he knows that he went a little overboard. So he's brought an apology goat. This is the equivalent of roses um, or chocolate. I don't know what you'd do for y'all's spouses. Um, but this is a makeup present, this goat that he brings. And now put yourself in the dad's shoes for a second. At the end of your daughter's week long wedding feast, this is what happened. The groom got really ticked off, really mad. He yelled, he called your daughter a cow in front of everyone. And then he runs home in hot anger and you haven't heard from him in months. What would you think was going on? I would have probably thought, well, he's probably not coming back. Let's get this daughter married. Um, Yeah, if if I was the father, I think maybe possibly this is time to move on from Samson. So he says, I thought you utterly hated her. So I gave you to her companion. And this is meant to be funny. It's also kind of tense though, because the father, you know, imagine you're the father again and you've got Samson who showed up. Last time you saw him, he was hot tempered, mad as heck. And they surely probably heard of these 30 naked guys found in Ashkelon and put two and two together. That there were 30 companions and 30 murders in this place. So he comes up with this idea that Samson, why don't you marry my other daughter? He's just, I think he's just trying to keep himself from getting hurt. But Samson doesn't want that. He doesn't want that at all. And the only logical thing any man would do in this situation, I'm sure we've all been tempted to do this at some point, he wipes out the food supply of an entire nation. <laughs> you can imagine yourself doing this. You go out you catch 300 jackals, 300 foxes. He ties them together. You know, he's got to crate them. He's got to feed them. This is a meticulous long thing that he did. He's really angry. <laughs> remember it's the harvest time so he takes these jackals he ties their tails together somehow puts a torch i don't know how it works but he puts a torch there sends them out through the field and he's got probably on a cart sends one out every few hundred yards or every kilometer and then he just destroys everything this is the harvest time this is when there's about it's time to get the food because all your food from last year is running out and then samson goes and he he himself goes and destroys all the standing grain everything that's left he goes and he destroys it and then just to make it even worse, he destroys all the olive trees and the, all the olive orchards that the Philistines have. And now the Philistines are in big, big trouble. This is their food supply destroyed for the coming year. So instead of going after themselves, this next move doesn't make sense to me, but what they do is they go and they find his wife and the father and they do what they promised to do in the beginning. They burn, they burn them all down in the house. And I think what happens here, maybe they're trying to cut Ties with Samson so he's not like we don't want this guy anymore. They're trying to cut ties with Samson so that he's out of the picture and not connected to the Philistines anymore. So after he does this, we find he really has a heart for this woman. Now he's like Liam Neeson taken angry at this point. <laughs> we thought he was angry before, it's a whole new level. Verse 7 After the Philistines come up, they burn the, her and the father with fire. Verse 7 Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you. And after that, I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. And he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Etam. So he strikes them hip and thigh. I think it's an old-timey way of saying that he went, found the people responsible for this, probably some innocent bystanders too, and just massacred all of them. So at this point, his supernatural strength has got to start to be on display by the Philistines. They're starting to get scared. In fact, in the next chapter, we we don't get there, but they call him the ravager of our land, the ravager of our land who has multiplied our slain. He's like terrorizing the Philistines. They feel terrorized by this guy. And they should have listened to him. They should have left him alone because he said he was going to quit, but they just can't get enough punishment. They go after him again, but this time they get someone else to do their dirty work. For them. Verse 9. So the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. This is a, an Israelite town. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? The Philistines said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So what happens here, the Philistines start to attack this town of Israel called Lehi. And the people of the town, The men of Judah, they don't understand why are the Philistines attacking us all of a sudden? We've been good little hostages this whole time. Why are they coming after us all of a sudden? And when they realize it's because of Samson, they seem to almost volunteer. to go. The Philistines didn't ask them to go get Samson. It's like they volunteered to go find Samson themselves. So the people of Israel, they collect 3,000 soldiers, Israelite warriors, and they go and they find Samson And here's where it is revealed how bad it's actually gotten in Israel. Um, They aren't just not asking for help. They don't want help, right? They want the Philistines to rule over them instead. They don't want any help from Samson or God. Because what we should read next in the text, we should read something like this. And when the warriors found Samson, He led them in battle and defeated the Philistines and the land had rest for 40 years or something like that. That's what we should read next. But here's what actually happens, starting in verse 11. And notice the strain, it's really strange. Verse 11, then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Edom and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What is this then that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, So I have done to them. And they said to him, we've come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, no, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will not surely kill you. So what's going on here? Instead of a war cry against the Philistines, this is what we get. The men of Judah are basically saying to Samson, they're saying, listen, Samson, We got a good thing going on with the Philistines. Don't you know they are our rulers? And they may crush us from time to time. They may oppress us, but that's the way things are. And you are messing this whole thing up. We don't wanna be saved. So they see Yahweh's enemies, the Philistines, as their rightful lords. That's not true. The Lord is. But they see the Lord and they see his savior as their enemy, getting in the way of them serving the Philistines. How upside down has it gotten in Israel? And they're going to take, here's the the kicker, they're going to take the one guy, the one person in all the land that could save them, or even cares about them in the slightest, and they are going to deliver him to be killed. The one person that could save them. So they bind Samson with two new ropes, and they bring him up from the rock to the Philistines. And when he came to Lehi, back to where the Philistines are, verse 14. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck a thousand men. So, after the people of Judah hand Samson over to be killed, God melts the ropes off of his arms, and he picks up the jawbone of a donkey. I have a picture of a jawbone of a donkey. You can see it's got a great handle. You just want to grab it and hit somebody with it, don't you? <laughs> uh, that one doesn't look very fresh. He has a fresh one. I wonder how fresh it was. Is there like a donkey walking around without a jaw somewhere? <laughs> you just grab one. Um, but he grabs one of those, and he starts w- killing people with it. And because it's fresh, and it's probably a little miracle mixed in too, it, it lasts all the 1,000 people that he had to kill. He kills a 1,000 warriors with it. You get the feeling that if, if he wanted to, if it was necessary, he could kill 10,000. And our text ends, verse 16, with a beautiful poem by Samson about heaps and heaps of the Philistines' dead bodies. <laughs> I think I have a slide that has that, maybe... Yeah, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men? Beautiful. So God fights for these Israelites; He saves them when they don't want to be saved. But here's one more big question, and it has to do with these people's hearts. Oh, here's here's the question number two: How does God respond when His people don't want to be saved? What happens here? He saves them anyway. He accomplishes salvation for His people anyway. It does not depend on your desire or your effort, his people's desire, or his people's effort, he comes and he saves you anyway. God fights for them, even when they don't want to be saved. Our last question, though, is gonna lead into the next question. How does God respond to hearts that don't trust him? He's laid out this salvation. It's right in front of them. All they have to do is grab it. God has done everything necessary for their salvation. Look at this scene. There's heaps upon heaps, of their enemies that Samson has killed in battle. Where are the Israelites, though? (laughs) You ever wonder where they went? Verse 18, Samson goes, let's go to the jawbone, and he's thirsty. I think I have verse 18, maybe. And he was very thirsty, and he called up, no, he's very thirsty, he calls upon the Lord and said, you have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the circumcised, uncircumcised, Um, Where did all of these Israelite warriors go? Surely there's somebody's got a flask or a, a bladder of water that he can take a sip from. They're all gone. They left him. They left him all alone. They left him. They chose, instead of following Samson in this fight that was unlosable, they ran away. God did everything needed to secure their salvation against the Philistines, and they ran from it. They ran from it. These people in our text, they don't, it's really bad. These people in our text, they don't want to follow Samson and they don't want to follow and trust this God who accomplishes salvation for them. God takes care of everything. Notice the battle's won. All they have to do is take it. The table's set for a feast. The table is all set. The ball is all teed up. All they have to do is take it, to live in it, but the people still refuse to trust him. The one thing that they lack is trust. They are incapable of trusting God by themselves. Samson, you know, he can save Israel. He can do, he can do a lot for Israel, but Samson is incapable of changing these people's hearts. He is incapable of implanting faith and trust into their souls. God can tee it all up for us. But unless we have faith, unless we have trust, that's what faith means, unless we trust him, we'll never grab on to this great salvation. We will neglect this great salvation, as the writer of Hebrews said earlier. But Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, can. He gives us that trust. That's the trust. It's absent in this text. Maybe a little bit in Samson, he cries out to God for water. It's absent in this text. But what these people need is trust. What they need is faith in Jesus, which is what he gives us. I'm have going to look elsewhere from this text. It's not here. I'm going to look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. It's one of my favorite texts. And it says, I think I have it up there. We are saved by faith through grace. And this faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Faith to trust him. That is even a gift from God that he gives to us. You know how God, this is how God responds to people that don't trust him. Is people that don't trust him. He gives us faith. Here's what this text leaves us asking ourselves. So just like with the Israelites, doesn't matter who you are, God has done everything necessary to make you right with him, to, get, to make a right relationship with God. All those people's ugly sins in this book, all their transgressions, all their rebellion, he still wants these people. It's crazy. He still wants these people. I might have mention this before. People talk about God of the Old Testament being some kind of fire and brimstone God. It's not true, man. He's, his heart is bleeding for these people that are so un, un, uh, untrusting of him, that are so adulterous toward him. His heart bleeds for them. He'll do anything to bring them to him. And if his heart beats like this for these kind of people, what do you think you can do to turn him away from you. Here's, like, here's a hypothetical question, okay? Unlike Israel, what if we trusted in, personally trusted in this God? What if God, what if you trusted that God loved you and everything was gonna be okay? This is what the Israelites should have, God lo- by what happened with, with Samson, God loves us. Everything's gonna be okay. We can trust him now. What if this was true for you? What if everything was gonna be okay and God loved you? What would change? What would you change about your life if you actually believe this or believe this deeper? Or what could you let go if you believed that God loved you and everything was gonna be okay? And you can't mess it up. That thing you're worried about later today, uh, that thing you're worried about later this week, that thing you're worried that you will never get, that thing you're deeply worried will eventually happen. What if God loved you and everything was going to be okay? Maybe the bad thing would happen, but what if God loved you and everything was going to be okay? What about the things you're worried that you're going to fail and it's going to ruin your life? What about the worry we feel for how other people think about us? What if the Lord was taking care of you through this all? What if you didn't have to worry about any of that stuff anymore ultimately? What would change? What if God, what if hypothetically, what if and this is all true if you trust in Jesus? What if God was going to take care of you and cherish you no matter what you did? What if the Lord was fighting your enemies and saves you from your enemies? What if he saved you from all the guilt and all the punishment you deserve for all the bad things you've done, the bad things you've never told anybody about? What if Jesus took that punishment for you on the cross and your relationship with God was secure forever? And what if it is assured that the whole world at the end of history is going to be this place that Jesus secures for us where there's no sin, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no sadness, there's no tears, and we're going to live there with him forever. What if everything was going to turn out okay? Ensuring this, is not Samson. He is not in Samson's wheelhouse to make all these things come true. Samson's only a man, but this text, this story, has so many places in it that points forward to the actual one that's going to do this for us. Because a thousand years after Samson, there was another miraculous birth that was announced by heavenly beings. A thousand years after this, there was a man that was born to save Israel too. Remember. Samson was born to save Israel from the Philistines. This man was born to save us from our sins. This man was also handed over, bound, bound by his own people to Gentile overlords, the Romans, to be put to death because he got in the way. And after he accomplished everything his people needed on the cross, he cried out that he was thirsty too, like Samson. But he was more than a judge. He was the judge that all these judges are pointing to. He's not just a king. He is the king of kings. And he did everything necessary for your salvation and the renewal of the whole world as well. If the people were to trust in Samson, they would share in his victory over the Philistines. But as we trust in Jesus, we share in his victory over sin, over death, over Satan, over sickness, over injustice, over it all. Samson's victory was assurance that when it came to their enemies, everything was gonna be okay. God's got this. This week, here's here's our homework. Ask yourself this question this week, at least once, ask it. If not many times, ask yourself this question. What if in Jesus, in what he has done, everything is gonna be okay? What would that look like to trust him? Maybe even trust him for the first time. Just ask that question. What if because Jesus is the king and he loves me, everything will be okay. What would it look like for us to trust him? Let's pray. Father, we pray you would take this story of Samson and the king that Samson points to, and you would help us to trust you so that we can love you and love our neighbor and love our enemies and love annoying people, (laughs) love the people in our families. And we pray that you would set us free to serve you this week. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.